Stop the presses. Pull out the front page. Stand by for a replay. Yeah, it's those two guys from Milwaukee. Oh, those two guys from Milwaukee. Here we go again. It's those two guys from Milwaukee. Welcome to Unknown Orbits, the podcast in which two writers discuss everything science fiction from Gernsbach to Roddenberry. Welcome to episode 29 of Unknown Orbits, Guilty Pleasures. I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Reitze. This week we're going to talk about guilty pleasures of ours. Now, I have my own definition of a guilty pleasure. To me, a guilty pleasure is something that you know objectively is not good, but you enjoy it anyway. That sounds good. My view is a little bit more like it's something that you enjoy, but you're embarrassed to tell other people about. That would certainly be an element of that. I don't know that I would be particularly embarrassed to tell anybody about my guilty pleasure, which is the comic book series Magnus Robot Fighter. When I talk about the comic book series, I'm not talking about the recent reboots. I'm talking about the OG 1960s Gold Key Magnus Robot Fighter. Well, my guilty pleasure is Hugh Walter's UNESCO series of novels. However, I do find when I'm telling people about this, I immediately have to go into an explanation of why it's acceptable that I like these books. Okay. Well, we'll start with mine. So, as I said, Magnus Robot Fighter was a comic book series that began in 1963, published by Gold Key Comics. Now, Gold Key was a subsidiary of Western Publishing. We've talked a little bit in past episodes about Gold Key and Western Publishing. They were a publishing company out of Racine, Wisconsin. I wound up reading a lot of Gold Key comics when I was a kid, and thinking back on it, I'm beginning to wonder if maybe the reason that I read so many Gold Key comics, aside from the fact that they had a lot of science fiction and horror titles, and when I say horror titles, that's advisedly horror because it was fairly soft, not terribly gruesome horror. It's more spooky comics than really genuine horror comics. So you mean less so than Tales of the Crypt? Yeah, it would have been more like adaptations of the Twilight Zone. They had a Twilight Zone comic. So it was light horror, ghost stories, that sort of thing. Now, I'm thinking, this is just a theory of mine, that because I grew up in southeastern Wisconsin, not too far from Racine, I actually lived in Kenosha County. I lived just a few miles from the Illinois border. So I'm thinking that gas stations and hardware stores and grocery stores were well stocked with the local product, Gold Key Comics. So whenever I would go to the store with my parents, I would bug them, hey, can I buy a comic book today? They would say, yeah, you can buy one comic book, you know, pick pick what you want. And chances are there might have been only one rack of comic books and they were all Gold Key comic books. So that's what I had to pick from. That's my theory as to why I wound up being such a heavy reader of Gold Key Comics rather than Marvel or DC, which I also did read when I was a kid. I was more of a DC comic book reader when I was a kid than Marvel. I was into Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman and so forth. Aquaman was my favorite character, but I did read a lot of Gold Key. I grew up in Whitewater in the mid-70s, and I remember that Schultz's department store in the basement had a rack for 
comics and books. And Western Publisher was well represented because I remember looking out for the little big books and then their larger young adult books that they would have. Well, yes. And we very recently did Clutch of Morpheus, which was a story that I discovered in a Western publishing anthology of science fiction stories. So I just think that they were the local publishing house and they were dominant in our geographic area of southern Wisconsin. So Magnus Robot Fighter was created by the artist Russ Manning, who was known for doing military and Western comics. He created the character of Magnus Robot Fighter. It's set in the year 4000, which is way out in the future. That's like super, super future, 4000 rather than 2010 or 23 or you know, 1997. There's always a struggle between placing it too early and too far out. That's the most remote future date that I can think of for anything that I've ever read off the top of my head. But anyway, so Magnus lives in a world dominated by robots where most of the labor in the world is done by robots, including policing. So there are police robots that handle crime on planet Earth. And he is raised as an orphan by a friendly robot who teaches him the art of being a fighter, including the ability to smash steel with his bare hands. I noticed they kind of glossed over the training necessary. Yeah, they just showed like a part of a panel of him karate chopping a steel bar. And that was right after the panel of him reading books. And that was his entire origin story. It was told in like three panels, you know, and that's it. That's all the detail they went into. But I don't think your average eight-year-old really cared that much about the logic of the origin story. Right. And that's why, and this is going to be a little bit of a theme here today, is the idea that these comic books were not written for grown-ups. They were written for kids. And so the stories, Magnus Robot Fighter, were pretty simple. They usually revolved around a bad robot of some kind or another. Like one of the first issues, I think the first issue was about the police chief of the robot police force suddenly turned evil and hated human beings. And he was kidnapping humans and using their brains as computers. And he captured Magnus and his girlfriend, who was pretty useless. She was the daughter of some senator and tagged along in a lot of his adventures and really didn't contribute in any way whatsoever to solving the crimes or fighting the robots or overcoming whatever the menace of the day was. So he was constantly fighting evil robots who were trying to kill humanity, take over the world, all these different nefarious plots that would come up. I do like how, even though it is for eight-year-olds, they made an effort to show how the robots got past their equivalent of the, the robotics laws. Right. And I believe that Russ Manning or the publisher, I don't recall which was very interested in Asimov's rules of robotics, that they liked the idea of the rules of robotics, one of which is you're not allowed to harm a human being, whether directly or by inaction, allow a human being to be hurt. So obviously the bad robots in this series violated the laws of robotics, and that was pretty much the whole premise of the entire comic series. Yeah. I look back on the art and everything. I've got a collection of the first 10 or so of the Magnus Robot Fighter comics, I'm sure it was those covers. 
those covers of him karate chopping a giant robot or being held in the clutches, the iron claw of some robot. That was what attracted me, I'm sure, on the newsstand. And they were entertaining enough. I was probably not that discriminating when I was eight years old and I was buying these comics. But he was not like a particularly special love of mine. I also read Turok, Son of Stone comics at the same time, which I think I actually like those a little bit better. That's the gold key comics where a Indian and his son are transported back to the age of the dinosaurs and they wind up fighting dinosaurs. And of course, I love dinosaurs tremendously at the time. So I actually like Turok, Son of Stone more than I did Magnus Robot Fighter. But I feel that Magnus Robot Fighter is more of an embarrassing item than Turok, Son of Stone, which was cooler in some ways. These two brave guys fighting dinosaurs with stone tomahawks and bows and arrows. And meanwhile, Magnus Robot Fighter was running around in a toga. (laughs) Well, by the way, that's one of those future things that was prevalent in the 1950s, into the 60s. Somehow in the future, everybody went around in togas. Well, you go back to the 1930s, things to come. They wore togas. Right. That's that's a movie that we discussed previously in another episode. And yes, they all wore togas. I don't know who invented that idea. Maybe that's something we could do a little research on. But for some reason, at some point, the idea of people in the future would walk around in togas took hold. So that was my guilty pleasure, Magnus Robot Fighter. It was clearly written for kids. I mean, specifically young boys. Coming up to the counter with their dirty, sweaty quarter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then you take it home and you read it five times. Then you, your friends come over and they bring their comic books and you swap comic books. And you, know, you spend an afternoon just reading comic books together. So that was my guilty pleasure. So tell me about, about yours, Steve. The series was written by Hugh Walters. I really don't know a whole lot about the author himself, just the books. So I did a little bit of research for this episode, and his real name was, or full name was Walter Llewellyn Hughes. He was very much a proper member of British society. That's why he had to use a pen name, because that would have been embarrassing for him. He was a member of the British Interplanetary Society and the British Astronomical Association, which mirrors a number of other science fiction writers and editors some of whom we've talked about in the past, that during the 1930s, there were all these space-related associations that sprang up for people who were advocating for developing and researching exploration of space, whether through astronomy or actual manned flight, whatever it may be. So he was very much in that camp. And he had a quote about his science fiction, which I think is kind of a, a window into his psyche. I believe a good science fiction story should, one, entertain... Two, educate painlessly. And three, inspire the young people of today to be the scientists and technicians of tomorrow. So his books were a little bit aspirational. But let me talk about the series. So UNESCO is his fictional organization. It's a United Nations organization for the exploration of space. But it's basically the British space program. Yeah, I got that impression from reading this one story. 
Of course, this started back when the British Space Agency was a much larger organization and they were trying to be on a par with the United States and Russia and other countries. I believe they still exist, but like everyone else, it's mostly about satellites now. Yeah. I mean, you get astronauts from all these different countries that wind up hitching a ride to the space station on Russian rockets. It used to be on the space shuttle. You know, almost every major country has some, I don't know if calling a space program is right, but they have astronauts. So obviously there's got to be some kind of a training space related program that they have, you know, kind of a space community college. I'm trying to think right now, Americans, obviously the Russians and the Chinese have all built rockets and sent them off to other planets. The Chinese just landed on the moon recently, landed right. a, uh, a survey ship on the moon very recently. India may have successed. India has a little bit of a space program. Oh, you know, there is a European Space Agency now. Now, how long that European Space Agency has been around? I know that the common market, which was the forerunner of the current European Union, that was 1956 or 57. So any joint European Space Agency could have existed let's say in the 1960s when these books were coming out and continued on to the current day. The books are about a core group of four astronauts from different countries. There's Sergei from Russia, Chris from Britain, Tony from the US, and this other guy. <laughs> this other guy. <laughs> He's so memorable. It's been a little while. And what was fun for a kid is that the individual novels were all based on a single mission. So the first one I ever read, which is technically outside of our purview, which is why I gave you a different one to read, was called Neptune One is Missing, which for a kid is a very exciting, evocative title. It's the spacecraft is missing. It drew me in right away. From time to time, he covered such things as putting astronauts to sleep on long missions, psychic powers, ion drive, which was a big new concept in the 50s and has been used to some success. So you would learn a little bit about the solar system that way. You'd learn about various different speculative types of space technology. Yeah, like Terror by Satellite has a large artificial satellite in Earth's orbit and the commander goes insane and he creates a gamma ray laser and beams it to earth and he's starting to destroy crops as a demonstration and then he's just starting to burn up the whole planet to get what he wants and so these astronauts have to sneak aboard and stop this and tony's already there and by the way one of the things that appealed to me was that tony was a young he was the youngest of the crew and in fact in the first book he was a kid with a rare form of cancer they were taking him to the moon to see if that would cure him. So Tony was a young American who went into electronics and could use a soldering iron. I was a young American who knew how to use a soldering iron. So, of course, Tony was my favorite character. So these were definitely written for, would you say, preteens, kids? Yeah, kind of like the Heinlein juveniles, 10 to 12 maybe. Okay. So nowadays they might be called young adult, perhaps, there's a different categories that I'm not terribly familiar with, but clearly they were kids' books. From his comments about wanting to make sure that science fiction was educational and inspiring, it seems that he was definitely writing for that audience. 
you read the whole series or? Nearly. As an adult, I got curious and looked back, and I think he wrote them up to 1980. So there were a number at the end that got increasingly weird because he ran out of planets. I suppose. The, the, the main series, Mission to Mercury, Neptune One, um, something Uranus. I mean, he tried to work Something the, in Uranus. <laughs> Passage to Pluto. He tried to work the name of the planet in there most of the time, but then he ran out of planets. So okay. Molehole Project, I actually like that one. That's where they dig a exploratory hole into the Earth's crust and they find a giant void in there. And so one of them has to go down there to investigate it. Then mm-hmm. he had the Bermuda Triangle, which was the weirdest of the series where they meet dolphin-like aliens and, I don't know, come to an agreement with them of some form. So they did get weirder and weirder as time went on, and I didn't read those. I stopped with basically the books that concern missions to planets. Okay. So I will say I did read Terror by Satellite, and... I thought it was, the word I would apply to it is workmanlike. I thought it was a very professionally well-written story. And there's something about that British style of juvenile adventures. And I'm thinking, you know, the uh, young investigators type books, like the Hardy Boys. I believe the Hardy Boys were originally British, weren't they? Oh, I don't know. I was thinking of the stiff upper lip and people staring at each other without expressing their emotion. Well, of course, yes. But there was that sort of very British style to this thing. What you would get with an American science fiction juvenile is a little bit more of a gee whiz quality. So I think that was what was lacking in this. It was more matter of fact in terms of the tone. Yeah. You could make a comparison between that and Have Spacesuit Will Travel by Heinlein. And the Heinlein book is a lot more exciting. Yeah. And that's not to say that this, I think exciting was probably too strong of a word for Terror by Satellite. He did a good job of carrying you along with the story, but there was a lot of explaining how he got from point A to point B. And I wouldn't say it was action packed, really. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Tony's attempt to save everyone by sacrificing himself was written so very British. Yeah. Yeah. But it was good. It was not an unenjoyable read for me. So in terms of guilty pleasures, I guess for you, would it be the fact that, you know, you're a grown man and you're reading juvenile science fiction or? Yes. Okay. I don't think that's too terribly embarrassing to admit. I'm not terribly embarrassed to admit that I still like to look at guys in togas fighting robots with their magical ability to smash steel with their bare hands. I'm not embarrassed to admit that I still enjoy that. My feeling on Magnus is it's a time filler, but exciting for kids. It's got the old tropes of one man against tyranny, traveling from town to town, fighting tyranny. And he often fights lots of robots. Like sometimes he's fighting literally hordes of robots. I got a Matrix vibe off of it in that here's a kid reading about a character doing deadly violence to things. Things that are not people, things that don't matter. Yes. So it's not bad. That's a good point. So yeah, he's blasting these robots to pieces with his bare hands. So you couldn't do that in a children's comic book where he's tearing people apart with his bare hands. Yeah. But somehow if it's a bunch of robots, well, that's okay. So that's a good point. I had never thought of it that way, but that's an interesting take. Both these things are fairly simple, as they should be for children 
we remember them now because we had such fond memories of discovering them and reading them at the time. Mm-hmm. Before we move on to our surprisingly mutual honorable mention, I remember the UNESCO series was the first series of books I was reading out of my small town library where I walked in one day and there was a new one. And it was such a wonderful that, feeling. That had to be really exciting. There's nothing that I read as a series when I was a kid out of a library that gave me that kind of experience. Whatever I read that was part of a series, they had the whole series or most of the series, and I don't remember seeing any new ones come in. So I'm kind of jealous of you. That That's kind of a cool feeling. I literally remember the day getting that book and running home so I could read it. Oh, I could just imagine. So our honorable mention for Guilty Pleasures are mid to late 60s, early 1970s kaiju movies. These would be the Godzilla movies by Toho Studios, but also the Gamera movies from Dai Studios. And most of them are not very good. I am not afraid to admit that objectively, the majority of those movies were not very good at all. Not a single Golden Globe nomination. No. Some of them were really terrible. There's a few of them that I don't watch and am not going to rewatch. And I'm thinking particularly about you, Godzilla versus Megalon. That's an almost unwatchable movie. That's terrible. Was Megalon one of the robot monsters? Yeah. Megalon and Gigan were like robotic monsters. And then, of course, there's Mechagodzilla. Now, the Mechagodzilla movies were not too bad. I guess on a relative scale, there's the definitely bad to not too bad. And it's the not too bad ones that I will rewatch. So for instance, that would be Destroy All Monsters, which I saw in the theaters as a kid, which I would defend and say that that's a pretty decent Godzilla movie. And then there is Ibarra, Horror of the Deep. That's the one where he fights a giant lobster. I've never heard of that. This is my list of not really too bad Godzilla movies of the era. So Ibarra, Horror of the Deep. Son of Godzilla has its moments. Are you kidding me? No, you know what? I'm sorry. I got it mixed up. Son of Godzilla is terrible. Thank that's you. A real, that's the one where the little boy has a fantasy that he's a kaiju playing with Godzilla's son, and he gets beat up by bullies. That's a horrible movie. The one I was thinking of was All Monsters Attack, which takes place on an island, and it has a whole bunch of monsters in it. It has... Kumanga, which are the giant praying mantises, Gorosaurus, Angrosaurus, a bunch of all-star kaiju in that movie. And then, of course, there's the infamous, again, saw this one in the movie theater when it came out, Godzilla versus the Smog Monster, otherwise known as Godzilla versus Hedera. And there were very many similarities of suck between all of these movies, like Godzilla going from being a menacing force of nature to a goofy anthropomorphic figure. When he was played by Roger Moore. (laughs) So Godzilla versus the Smog Monster, when I saw it, it was already kind of infamous. By the time it got to my local small town theater, it was already infamous as being a terrible movie. And it was put on several lists of the worst movies of all time. But then I rewatched it a couple years ago, and I was like, well, wait a minute. There's some stuff in this movie that falls into the not-quite-so-bad 
category of Godzilla movies. It is definitely nowhere near as bad as Son of Godzilla or Godzilla versus Megalon. It's much better than that. That's one that if you haven't seen it or if you haven't seen it recently, I would recommend rewatching Godzilla versus Hedorah or otherwise known as Godzilla versus the Smog Monster. Not as bad as you thought and quite interesting. It's a very different movie. I could see that on the poster. Not as bad as you thought. <laughs> there you go. That's ringing endorsement. Not as bad as you think. And then, of course, there's the Gamera movies, which after the first one or two were just dreadful. Now, Gamera was, I think I can picture him, but he wasn't like a moth or anything. He was no. He was more like a flying dinosaur. Flying turtle. Oh, okay. He was the one that would shoot fire out of his leg holes and spin around and fly through the air. Yeah, yeah, Which, I remember them now. From a scientific basis, I'm not exactly sure how that works. I think if someone in a meeting raised his hand and said scientific basis, they would have slapped him on the back of the head. <laughs> but it is kind of cool. So they did wind up remaking the Gamera movies in the 1990s, and they did a pretty darn good job. Those are actually decent defensible movies. So I can confidently say that many of these movies that I, to this day, still enjoy are not particularly good movies. I am willing to admit that, but for some reason, I still like them because eight-year-old me loved dinosaurs and kaiju movies, giant monster movies in the 1950s is still, to this day, one of my favorite things. Now, my experience with these movies... In fourth and fifth grade, my best friend Matt and I would go over to his house after school, and one of the local TV stations for a good couple years would show a kaiju movie every day at like four o'clock. And we'd go there and we'd eat whatever snacks that his parents bought that week and watch these movies. And my favorite parts of these movies, I call them the doozer scenes, where they have the little model bulldozers and cranes and things building the giant stadium that they're going to kill the giant lobster in. Or they're building the giant electric ray that's going to finally kill Godzilla or whoever Godzilla's enemy of the movie was. Yeah, yeah. Just the massive construction project on an emergency basis, which there's something cultural about that because they did that so many times and I loved it. Yeah, and it's got the music too, right? Oh, yeah. The, the wonderful Akira Ikafube busy work music, which is very distinct. So you were into these way more than me. As I said, to me, it was just like an eight, nine-year-old kid having these images fly past my eyes. And I doubt if I even worried about plot at that point. We were probably talking about what girls we liked in the fifth grade. Yeah. See, no, when it came to anything to do with dinosaurs, I was a complete nerd. I knew all the names of all the dinosaurs. If you show me a picture of a dinosaur, I could identify it for you. There's a family story that one of my aunts brought her fiancé to a family get-together, and I cornered him and was quizzing him on his knowledge of dinosaur names, apparently, when I was like six or seven years old. That's exactly the age I was going to guess, <laughs> with a toy dinosaur in your hand. Like, you know what kind of dinosaur this is? You don't. <laughs> the poor guy. <laughs> I just, I can't imagine what he must have been thinking. But, you know, kaiju movies, a lot of people love kaiju movies. You don't have to apologize for that. That's the whole thing about guilty pleasures is it's okay to admit that something is objectively bad, but you still love it. 
Except for like IPA beer. Or Hello Kitty. Yeah. <laughs> of course, I think admitting that they aren't great things is part of the fun. I, yeah. I don't think I'd have a lot of respect for someone who tried to claim that the Godzilla movies were the best cinema of all time. No. You could make that claim about the very first Godzilla movie, but then even the first sequel went downhill in terms of quality and and seriousness. The first movie was a serious movie. It was an allegory about atomic warfare made by a country that had actually experienced atomic warfare. But after that, no. I mean, I would say that the earliest movies like King Kong versus Godzilla, Godzilla versus Mothra, Rodan, the original Mothra movie, those were all pretty solid movies. Those were well-made movies that had a interesting plot, and many of those were about different social aspects. For instance, Godzilla versus Mothra was kind of a critique of capitalism, if you can believe that. If you remember, the unscrupulous promoter bought the Mothra egg from the fishermen and, oh, yeah. and then, and then uh, screwed them out of the payment. Yeah, that's pushing it a little hard to say that that was a serious commentary on society. But, you know, it had that element to it, which was completely missing from the later movies that were explicitly made for kids. That's one of the things that happened with the Toho Kaiju movies was that round about 1966, the special effects supervisor, E.J. Tisabura, kind of gained more control over the series. And they were making TV shows at the time as well. And that came into it, and they, the producers decided they wanted to try to focus more towards children as their audience rather than a wider audience as what they had had before. So that kind of explains the direction that the series took at that point. And then later, as the fans grew older, they became more adult movies again. Yeah, the high sci and millennium era movies from the 90s into the early 2000s were to some degree more... I don't know if adult is the right word, but they were more serious than the ones we were talking about in the 60s and 70s. Of course, any series of movies that goes on for so long is going to have changes. James Bond, for example. Roger Moore. Some of those movies are terrible, in my opinion. It's The Man with a Golden Gun, where there's a chase scene involving an AMC matador. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever driven or owned an American Motors car of the 1970s, particularly the Matador, or perhaps the more infamous Gremlin. Oh, yes, the Gremlin. Those were some of the worst cars ever made in America. And the fact that James Bond was seriously having a chase scene using what was one of the worst cars ever made in this country, I can't get past that. It's so terrible. And that's also the one that had that comical Southern sheriff. Oh, yeah. The boat chase. Yeah. Oh, my God. Some of those movies are just unwatchable. And then there was the one where Roger Moore is hiding out with a Eastern European circus, and they have James Bond dressed up as a clown with full clown makeup on. Yeah, I think that's Octopussy, and that could be the lowest point in the entire James Bond series, the clown James Bond moment. There's a few bad moments, but that is certainly, if not the worst, one of the worst moments in that series. Yeah, yeah. And these were movies made for grown-ups. Although you got to wonder if maybe some part of the producer's mind was like, well, let's make these a little more 
palatable to, to little kids. Oh, God. Something for the kids. Oh, God. What a terrible idea. So anyway, those have been our guilty pleasures. Yeah. And I'm not ashamed at all to admit it. I am only slightly ashamed. <laughs> all right. Well, that's it for episode 29. Please tune in next week for another journey into the golden age of science fiction. I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Reitze. Keep watching the sky. That's all for today. Pat and I thank you for listening and invite you to come back for the next episode of Unknown Orbits. Two guys from Milwaukee.